I bet you're wondering two things. One, why can't we just listen to Micah the rest of the day instead of me? And the second is, so this is what Brandon's going to look like in 26 years. Oh, my gosh. That guy doesn't stand a chance. Um, this morning, I'd like to share with you uh, two verses that over, over my life have meant a lot of things to me. Uh, the first comes out of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. If I could uh, take any passage and had to and had to live on it for a year, it would be the Sermon on the Mount. A couple weeks ago, Ken mentioned that that's just got all kinds of ethical teachings, and it does, but it also has some real-life applications teachings, and um, that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. The first uh, section, uh, the verses that I want to look at are right at the beginning of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about the Beatitudes, and then he all of a sudden from there tells us that we're two things. Whether we want to be or not, we are. We're salt and we're light. Not you're going to be salt, you're going to be light, but you are salt. You are light. And when he talks about light, he says uh, in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So basically, our actions allow other people to see God in us, and they give praise to God. The second verse is my life verse, and that's Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. That's just, it's always just enamored me with the fact that God already has these good deeds for me to do, these good works. And they go along with this, if I'm doing these good works, these good deeds, then I'm going to be the light that people are going to be able to see my Heavenly Father through. So that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. What are these good deeds, these works that God's prepared in advance for you, advance for me, and how do we live them out? A lot of us uh, walk around trying to say, how do I be a better Christian? How do I be a light? How, how do I be a better husband? How do I be a better wife? How do I be a better parent? Um, how can I be a better light at the workplace? And so we're going to be exploring that this morning. Um, just kind of as a start, I just want you to know that if your life's like mine, nothing ever turns out or goes like you plan. You have this great idea, and, and you do all this research and get it done, and then when you go to do it, it just doesn't turn out. Um, when I first met my wife, I wasn't a Christian. I'm a first-generation Christian, and so um, my wife is too. But uh, she's the one that kind of led me to the Lord and in our dating process. And when I got ready to ask her father and mother for her hand in marriage, I went through this huge long list of things I needed to say and to cover so that they could trust me with their daughter and just to show that I was the guy for her. And I knew I had an uphill battle because the only job I had at the time was selling Kirby vacuum cleaners. And uh, they're really expensive. I'm not a real good salesman, so I wasn't doing that well. Um, really didn't have a plan, so I really kind of had to sell myself. So I call Sue's parents when I know she's um, away at work and ask if I can come over some, some evening. So we set up a time, and I show up, and I sit down, and I get my mental list out, and I go, you know, I, I just want to know I love your daughter, and I'm just... I just want to marry, I want to support her, I, you know, I just, I just can't tell you. And 
my future father-in-law stops me mid-sentence. He goes, wait, we don't have to buy a vacuum cleaner? And I go, no, no. He goes, oh, okay, no, that's no problem. Go ahead. Yeah, you can have her hand. So I was like, man, I wasn't thinking, I didn't see that at all. So I go, great, this is great. So I'm starting to leave. He goes, now, do we get the steak knives? Do we, do we still get the steak knives that come with that? So throughout my studies and, and over the years, I've really come up for me, and I, this is what I want to share with you, a, a progression model out of the Old Testament that gets us from point A to point B, to here's where I want to be for God, here's what I want to do for God, and eventually here's where I am doing what God wants. How do I find his direction? How do I experience his direction? And, and especially as a child of God. And so a, to me, a great model is the children of Israel. And so in my life, I found that the children of Israel, God had all these promises for them, all these great things, but there was a progression to get them. They didn't just happen. Um, they had to go through this order to do that. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight. When God called the, the nation Israel, they were in Egypt at the time. And he called them out of Egypt. And so that, for me, is always a starting point. And Egypt is just where you are. The generation in Israel at that time, was they were just there. They were born there. They didn't do anything wrong to get there. They were just there, but they needed to get out of there. Things weren't going well. And Egypt, for me and maybe for you, is just kind of who I am, my personality, my temperament, um, my family of origin. This is how I do things. This is how my family did things. Um, and so I'm just going to attempt to do those things and see if God wouldn't lead me using those things, using the world tools, uh, things I learned from my parents or that just naturally come easy to me. And what I found over the years is my family of origin, where my parents weren't Christians, they really loved me, and it was, just, it was, it was a good home, but it didn't provide me for what God wanted me to do. And my wife's family of origin was a great home, but it didn't provide her what she needed to do when God called her to, to do. And so you need to overcome, that, and that's what Egypt is, recognizing. Egypt is taking time to identify who you are. My wife and I were married. It'll be 40 years this November, the 20th. And on December the 15th, um, we had our first fight. Um, so we didn't even go a month, you know. It was, and it was over how to decorate a Christmas tree. Can you believe how simple but that was? But it was like my family decorates it one way, her family decorates it another, another way, and we just got in the, and the whole thing was over how you put tinsel on a tree. <laughs> Tinsel's this little, if you've never seen it, it's just this little metal. And my family, we throw it on because we want it to look like it's just natural. And her family takes each strand and puts it here, stands back, no, let's move it there. So my half the tree, you can imagine, her half the tree, and what started the fight is she just went and turned the tree so we only saw her half. And uh, that just didn't really go over well with me and stuff. So, so Egypt, you just need to recognize this is who I am, and this is where, you know, as a Christian, we can call on the Holy Spirit to, to just to show us who we are. We have a Christian family, a community, um, like they mentioned in Africa. We have those things. Um, Egypt represents 
the world's vision uh, of what the world would do and how the world would do. And sometimes those things are good, but they're not what God's called us to do. Um, when we finally realize where we are, what we want, what God's called us to do, we need to leave Egypt. We can't go back to Egypt. Once you start moving, you really don't want to go back. When Israel moved out into the wilderness, God set up a form of government called a theocracy where God ruled the nation. And he would use individuals to share with the nation what he wanted. But he was the rule. And at some point, as he's given Moses all the law and all these things, he goes, at some point, you're going to want to abandon the theocracy. I, I wish you wouldn't, but I know you're going to, and you're going to want a king. So he says, when you have a king, there's only five things a king needs to do to, to really focus on and remember. Number one, the king has to be an Israelite. Number two, he can't have a lot of money. Number three, he can't have a lot of wives. Number four, he can't have a lot of horses, especially from Egypt. Can't go back to Egypt. And number five, he needs to write down the law and read it and think about it every day. And so those five things were all a king had to do. And so Saul was the first king, and then David replaced him, and then David's son Solomon became king at David's death. Solomon was a very young man. So he, God appeared to him in a vision one night and said to him, you know, I really want to honor your father, um, David, because of his love for me. So I know you're young, but I'll give you anything you want. And so Solomon thought about it and said, I'd like wisdom. And so God says, I'll give you wisdom. In fact, you're going to be the wisest man in the world, and you're going to write uh, the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And just, it's going to be incredible. I'm going to give you all this wisdom. So Solomon, then you just think as a king, he's already an Israelite. Now he can have money, so he only has to worry about three things. Well, that's all he has to do. And, and, and so for me, sometimes it's like, okay, if I can just narrow it down, that would be great. But then by the end of his life, we read about Solomon in uh, 1 Kings, and it says, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. That makes sense. I mean, God gave that, and, and that's great. And then it says, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. And then it says Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt, which he shouldn't have done. Then King Solomon, however, loved many foreign wives. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Can you just imagine that, 700 wives? You do the math. If you want to spend any quality time with a wife, you see her every other year. And that means every day you're going to see a new wife, and, you know, then you come in, and it's every, year, every day you come in, and you haven't seen this wife for two years for your quality time. So, you know, she goes, honey, how was your day? And you go, oh, fine, how was your last two years? You know, and you think, well, she, I do have this little honey-do list I'd like to, you to do. I've been accumulating it. So we had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and then it says his wives led him astray, then it said, so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord became so angry with Solomon because his heart had been turned away from the Lord and the God of Israel who appeared to him twice. So just because we have wisdom, just because we have direction, it's, that's great, but it doesn't, doesn't mean that we're going to have success. We're going to prosper with what God's called us to do. And so we have to leave Egypt. Solomon, the wisest guy in the world moved on, but he went back to Egypt. And for a lot of us, that's, that's our tendency, is we'll get out into the wilderness 
and that's where God leads us. And we tend to want to go back to Egypt. So Israel was called out. They went out into the wilderness. And for a lot of you, if you're like me, there are times in your life where you feel like you're in the wilderness. You're in the desert. I just don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do. Life just seems hard. I just don't get where we are. You're in good company. Jesus was in the wilderness. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. Hopefully our time's not going to last that long. Apostle Paul spent anywhere from 13 to 15 years in the wilderness. The wilderness, once you learn what it really does, you begin to embrace it. The wilderness focuses, refines what God's calling for you is. The downside is that's where we get all the temptations. That's where Satan seems to tempt us. His biggest temptation is to settle. Uh, That's the the fight I fight every day of my life. Don't settle. And and my encouragement for you today is don't settle. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. So it's a good thing. Jesus was a great model for us. He had three temptations. All three of those temptations had at one point one aspect of that temptation was for him to settle. The first one, turn rocks into bread. Why don't you make your ministry about the social gospel? Why don't you make your ministry about feeding the poor? There's so many needs out there. Why don't you make your ministry about that? And while Jesus's ministry did encompass that, that wasn't to be the focus. If he would have done that, he would have settled. The second temptation why don't you jump off this temple pinnacle and let your angels catch you? Do some miracles. Make your ministry about miracles. And while Jesus' ministry did include miracles, it wasn't the focus of his ministry. And then the third one, if you'll bow down to me, look, we're all over, I'll give you all the rules. Let's make it a political. Let's make it a political rule. And that's what a lot of the Israelites at the time wanted. But Jesus says, you know, that would be settling. My ministry is going to encompass political avenues and and aspects. It's going to have an impact on on the political world, but that's not the focus. And it says, after Satan had done those three temptations, he left him, the angels ministered, and then it said, Jesus left and began to do his ministry, which was to go out and preach that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And that then, from that point on, he moved towards the cross. And so we get those same temptations. It's a battle out there. Um, Ephesians 6.12 tells us that uh, we're in a spiritual battle. Um, uh, For our struggle is not against flesh or blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so we we need to realize that when we're in the wilderness during this time, and, and maybe for you you're out of work, or your home's upside down, or you're having problems with your kids, or you and your spouse aren't quite on the same track right now. Whatever it is, you need to realize that Satan is here, and and while there's a physical battle going on, the real battle is the spiritual one that's going on up above you. I've come to learn from for every physical action of mine, there is a spiritual consequence. Every physical thing I do has a spiritual consequence. Everything I do as a parent, um, I model to my kids and and affects my relationship with my kids. 
And apparently by Brandon's comment of scraping the barrel, I didn't really do a good job there on that with him. I made a promise to this, this morning that I was going to be a bigger man than him and, and not tell you all the stories that I have about him. But I, I need gas money home, so if you want to hear some, I, I've got some good ones. But everything we do, everything is, as a couple, that models. Everything we do as an individual, that has a spiritual consequence to the world around us. I think James captured it and realized and embraced the wilderness time in James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it joy when you face various trials. And it's not like the giddy, Oh, I'm just so excited that I just lost my job. This is just great. It's not that giddy kind of joy. It's the joy that's knowing that God is in control. And he says, Count it joy when you face various trials because the testing of your faith is going to produce perseverance or endurance. And once endurance has measured out and it has its full, you're going to be complete and mature, lacking in nothing. And, and so the wilderness experience tends to be, depending on where you are, an ongoing thing. I mean, it, it's, it, it isn't over in a minute. It isn't like, oh, I'm in the wilderness, now I'm out of the wilderness. It's not that at all. So embrace it. Realize if you're in the wilderness, it's because God's called you into the wilderness for a purpose. Just like he called Jesus there's a purpose. Now, you might not like it. Jesus, I'm sure, wasn't thrilled about the temptations. Moses didn't like it. Paul wasn't like it. But it was a time to refine what God wanted to do with your life. And the people I meet that come out of the wilderness, they go, you know, I wouldn't trade that time for anything. As bad as it was, I wouldn't trade it. Our family just became so, we just got some great stories out of that. We became closer. I, it, that never would have happened if I hadn't gone through the wilderness. And in the wilderness, and part of Satan's temptation that I've noticed recently is that he tends to tempt us with this kind of idea. And that is, the world or Egypt says, if it works, it's true. The Bible says, if it's true, it works. And so our temptation, one of our temptations in the wilderness is to say, oh, this is working, and even though it doesn't line up with God's word... It seems to be working for me, so it must be true. I'm, I'm doing this, and, you know, really, Bible's, you know, maybe it's gray about it, or maybe it's just black and white, but I'm, I'm okay with that. But, it, but that's the world's view, because at some point, it's not going to work. That relationship is going to just turn sour, and then it's just going to have tentacles all over um, that are going to take that bitterness into other areas. The Bible says if it's true... It works, so we know it's true, so if we'll just apply that, then it'll work in our life. We know that. The good thing about wilderness is that it's only for a season. It's never, you don't live in the wilderness all your life. Ecclesiastes says there's a time for everything, a season for everything, time to build, time to tear down, time for love, time for hate. There's, there's, it's a season. There's things to do for a season. The good thing is, is that grace appears to us. Probably more than any other areas when we experience grace is usually in the wilderness. And that's where God deals with our Egypt, with our, our past, and we receive that forgiveness. And, and grace, I, I, you know, I, I just sometimes can't even wrap my head around all that that entails. I came across a verse in Titus, um, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, um, talking about grace. And... Um, 
it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So that's Jesus. He brings us grace. But not only does it provide a way that we can have a relationship with God, not only does it forgive our past, not only does it just cover us uh, and, and our life, um, but it also, it goes on in verse 12, says, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this world. That's the great thing about grace, that it teaches us what to do. It's not just the cheap grace that Bonhoeffer talked about. Is yeah, I, I know it's not right. I'll go ahead and do it, and grace will cover that. that, that kind of cheap grace. But it actually, when we understand that, teaches us to say no so we can move towards a godly and, and a righteous life. The key is not to stay there, not to stay in the wilderness. Moses and the first generation all died in the wilderness because they just couldn't quite leave Egypt. Only two people of that generation made it out, Caleb and Joshua. And, and that's where I want to land and finish this morning, and that's in Joshua chapter 1, um, and we'll look at verses uh, starting in verse 6. God gives Joshua as he comes into the promised land. So as you get ready to begin to apply those good works, those good deeds that God's shown you while you've been in the wilderness, when you get ready to start to apply them and to experience them in order not to go back to Egypt, in order to stay out of the wilderness after you've gone there and learned your lesson, he tells Joshua three times the same thing. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody repeats something three times, it's usually pretty important. When Brandon was little, it was, Brandon, pick up your room. Brandon Charles, pick up your room. Brandon Charles Reynolds, don't make me come in there. Pick up your room. Brandon Charles Reynolds usually got him going. Um, and by the time it didn't, the next time just the br he was already done with it. It was just so afraid of well, what was going to happen. My kids, it's a terrible thing. My kids, uh, when they uh, got into high school, made up a T-shirt for me black t-shirt and had my name on the front and I got it for Father's Day and I go this is so great thanks I really appreciate that and I looked at it and it was great and then I lifted it up and go yeah I think it'll fit and I turn it over on the back side they had had embroidery and big huge letter the hammer's coming down that uh, my, my kids will tell you two things about me you're this close or the hammer's coming down um, so God tells Joshua the same thing three times, each time with a different promise or encouragement. Starting in verse 6, he says, Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give you. So the first, the first time, in, in order to carry this out, you need to be strong, you need to be courageous, because you're going to lead people to an inheritance. You're going to leave a legacy. And for most men, um, I'm sure women too, but I, men really connect with leaving a legacy. In fact, when they talk about midlife crisis, you know, it's always the 30s, 40s or something. There's, there's actually four different crises that men go through. And the last crisis they go is, what kind of legacy am I going to leave? And, and a lot of men struggle with that. It, it, it wasn't what I thought. But... We need to realize that if we 
stay strong and courageous with what God's called us to do, these good deeds that are going to be this light for the world, if we stay strong and courageous with that, we're going to leave a legacy. So we're going to leave a legacy with our immediate family, with our sphere of influence, with, with all these people, we're going to leave some kind of legacy. So what is that going to look like? Well, it's going to look different for each person, what, what we're going to do. Um, Ephesians um, 6, uh, 12, um, no, 6, 4, I'm sorry. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Don't frustrate your children. Don't just make them so, ah, I don't know what's going on. What am I going to do? One minute is this, and one, I don't know. I'm frustrated. Um, it says, don't, ex- don't, don't exasperate them. Don't frustrate them. So I'll say, well, how do you do that? Well, I love the Bible because then it says, instead... Okay, so here's the instead. So if I do this, I'm not going to frustrate them. It says, bring them up in the training and righteousness of the Lord. So that instead says, if I bring them up by God's standards, God's, God's way, his direction, that's not going to frustrate them. But instead, if I bring them up, what's the opposite? The world, Egypt. If I bring them up those ways, that's going to frustrate them. As a, as a parent... I would always, whenever I was tired, I wasn't thinking, I would fall back to whatever I knew. Hey, it worked for me. You know, I'm still living, so it must not be that bad. And so I would fall back to that. And I would catch myself saying, you know, I promised myself I wasn't going to do that. And it was at that time I I started believing in demon possession because I could hear my father just right through saying the same words and the same action with me. And I'm going, holy mackerel, somebody exercised Frank out of me. How did this get here? You know, but it was, it was that fallback. It was the Egypt. It, it wasn't the Christian, you know, principles. And so, we, so if we want to leave a legacy, this is just a little bit. If we want to leave a legacy with our kids, then we need to train them up in the way that God does. And, and Deuteronomy says, you know, when you train up a child, you know, teach them to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, and your soul. And you do that as they rise up, as they walk along, as they lay down, as you eat. Pretty much all the time. It's not just a one-shot deal. The second, time, second one, he says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from the right or to the left. Therefore, you may be successful wherever you go. Don't let this book of the law depart from your, um, uh, where am I? From your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that is written. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So obviously the Bible is huge in being prosper and successful and accomplishing what God's called us to do. And so uh, just an example of not going to the right or to the left, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us we have a ministry of reconciliation. That's one of our reconciliation. I happened to be here two weeks ago when Ken talked about relationships and reconciliation. And it just kind of got me thinking about... Um, what that looks like for for people, and especially for couples, but we're all in some kind of relation. And I came across years ago um, this idea that if this line here is the line of reconciliation, okay, everybody see that? The line of reconciliation, and you're here, and your spouse, your child, your neighbor, your boss, somebody's here, you go along this line of reconciliation. Each one of you, things are good, things are okay. And then at some point, they say or do something to you that offends you, 
and you begin to move away from this reconciliation line. And as you're moving away, right in here and in here, you're saying and doing things to them that then causes them to move away. And at some point, you finally decide, you know, I really need to be reconciled. You come back to be reconciled with them, but they're here. And then because they're here, then you move away from this, but then they start coming back. Every couple I've ever counseled, even after divorces, at some point, they look and they go, you know, I really would have liked to have been reconciled. I, I, I really would have liked that. It, it does, it's not going to work now. Uh, there are certain circumstances that won't do that. But you end up with this line. That, I'm not an artist like Ken is, but it, it's, it looks like this. They never meet, okay? Jesus came in here and said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, when somebody offends you, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile when they demand something. So Jesus right here basically said, I'm going to stay on this line. I'm never going to move away from this line. And so every time I come back, Jesus is there. And so if then I can model that, if I can be that minister of reconciliation, it actually talk, tells us we're the ambassadors of Christ. We have this ministry of reconciliation. It's amazing. If I can work really hard on staying on this line of reconciliation, at some point, my, my spouse, my kids, my friends, my boss, somewhere they're going to come back here and I'm going to be ready to meet them. And this thing is just not going to go on and on forever. That's that ministry of reconciliation. That's that not turning to the right or to the left or anywhere else. That's staying in God's word, saying I'm going to plant myself there in that ministry. And then the, 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 the final one, he says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I think the biggest obstacle in our lives is fear uh, of not knowing. Uh, my wife went back once the kids were uh, uh, out of school, uh, went back to college. She had gone for a semester to a JC when we were, uh, right before we were married. And so she went back and uh, Finished at a JC, went to a four-year, got her degree, and then went on and got a master's in marriage and family ministries. And, and so she's doing counseling right now. And we were talking a while back, and she gave me a great definition of fear. And she said, fear, I, I have to write it down because I'm not as smart as she is. Fear is an emotional response to a perceived threat. That's what fear is. It says the emotional part, your brain releases chemicals, your heart races, and it's to a perceived threat. Now, that threat may be real or it may not be real. But when we experience that fear, for most people, it's turn and run rather than is that fear real or is that not real, just a perceived threat. Um, but, but we have some reaction to that fear. I remember uh, when my kids were small, whenever one of them was sick or had a bad dream or something, they would come into our bedroom and they would stand at the door and they'd go, Dad, Mom, I had a bad dream. Oh, I have this. And so I've got two sons. Cameron's our oldest. He goes here, Cameron Reynolds, and, and then Brandon. And then our daughter came along, Courtney. And uh, I can remember laying in bed one night, and I was rolled, the edge of the bed's here, and I'm rolled over facing my wife, sound asleep. And I wake up and I sense that there's a presence in the room, that there's somebody by the side of my bed. So I immediately, this, whoa, that's how scared I was. Okay. So I immediately decide 
that it's a guy about 6'2". He's got this club in his hand, and he's going to harm my, me and my wife, and he's going to take out my kids. So being the, the man I am, I decide I've, maybe I'll just pretend to be asleep, and, and he won't do that. <laughs> and then my wife moved, and I realized, okay, that's not going to work. How's that going to look? So I go, what I'm going to do is I'm going to still pretend that I'm asleep. I'm going to kind of snore loud and snort. I'm going to roll over, and then I'm going to come as hard as I can right here, hit him right in the groin. And then he'll, take, he'll go down with that, and then I'll jump on the bed, and uh, you know, I'll grab him, I'll throw him out our second-story window. You know, If I have to, I'll hang on with him and go out and save my family. Great, all these great fantasies. So I go, okay, on three. So you guys know what's coming, don't you? So I, one, two, three, and I roll over like this, and right here, here's my daughter's face. Just standing there, her eyes just get big. So I just come across and go, oh, Cordy, how are you? What's wrong? We learned that our daughter never called our name. She would just come and stand by our bed and wait and wait and wait till we woke up. <laughs> so I learned I could just kind of nudge my wife and then fake like sleep, and then she'd have to get up with her. You know, it worked really well. Hebrews 13.6, um, if I can find it. Hebrews 13.6 says, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And, and that's the key in overcoming that fear. That's the key in realizing that God is with you. And I love that word, the helper, because Jesus... In the upper room, uh, John spends three or four chapters talking about uh, the things that are going to happen uh, in the upper room on the last night before his arrest and his death. And he explains the Holy Spirit, and he calls him the Holy Spirit. He calls him the Comforter. He calls him the Helper, your Helper. And so we have, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have that Helper living in us. The Lord is my Helper. It's that part of the Trinity that lives in us. And we have that within us to help us be strong and courageous, to, to not be afraid, to, to stay on the line, to not settle. Uh, Galatians 5 talks about the work of the Spirit, and it says we need to be led, led by the Spirit, we need to live in the Spirit, and we need to keep in step with the Spirit. You can begin to see that progression. We have that in us. And, and, and it's, it's huge. It's God. It's the same God that spoke the universe into creation lives within us. And he can create something out of nothing in our lives once we find that. So wherever you are in your life, if you're in Egypt, take some time and figure out what got you there and then move out of there. If you're, if you're in the wilderness, you know, it's a great place to be. Embrace it. Refine yourself. Don't settle. Look for that. And if you're into the promised land and you're beginning to do these good deeds, these good works so your light will shine and people will give God the glory that God, and these good works that God's already prepared for you, stay in touch with God. Live by that Spirit. Uh, walk with the Spirit. Um, keep in touch with Him. These things, they don't just happen. There's a progression. It, it doesn't, it's, it, we can't just think to ourselves, oh, I want to do that and it'll work. When we first uh, moved to Oregon, uh, 1981, I had small kids, and I had a friend walk up to me uh, one weekend and say, hey, uh, 
I noticed you started running, and I just started to, to run. You wouldn't know it now, but I, I used to run. And uh, he goes, I go, yeah, yeah, I'm starting to get in shape. He goes, how would you, uh, how'd you like to do a triathlon with me? I go, you bet. Sure, I'm in. When is it? Next weekend. I'm in. Well, what do we have to do? What's a triathlon? I know it's something athletic, so yeah, I want to do that. I'm trying to get in shape. Well, we, we swim, you bike, and you run. And I go, okay, I've been running for a month. I've, I have a bike, and I grew up in Southern California, and, you know, I, I know the ocean and riding boogie and waves, and I, yeah, I'm in. So I show up thinking I'm going to be a triathlonite, a triathlonite, whatever I was going to be. I wasn't, but I was going to be that. And so I show up, and I know I'm in trouble as I'm lugging this big, huge bike off my car, and it's got this huge yellow plastic molded child seat with a strawberry shortcake sticker. I've got a bell on it and a basket for groceries and snacks and stuff. And these other people are getting their bikes, and they're carrying them like this over to where they're going. And I go, oh, okay, you know, that's all right. And so we all line up, and everybody's ready, writing numbers on it, and we jump in the water, and it's like being hit by a wave. I'm just getting beat up, and, not, and I go under, and I'm just like swimming as hard as I can. Maybe I'll just try and swim underneath, underwater, and beat everybody. And I finally come up, and there's nobody in front of me. And I go, it worked. I'm in the lead. And then I go, can the finish line be this close? And then I turned around, and everybody's going that way. I was heading back to shore. So I start swimming, I catch up, and uh, I don't really catch up. I got a guy with a boat going, you okay? You going to make this here? You, you all right here? So I finally get to the bike, and I'm riding like the Wicked Witch of the West. You know, and I'm coming along, people, ring, 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 passing them all, just like zipping all through there. And we finally get to the running part, you know, and I do okay. But it wasn't at all what I thought it would be. Did I finish? Yes. Have I participated in another one since then? No. Uh, was it all that I could have been? No. I mean, it could have been a great thing. But I just thought I could just jump into that. And I think a lot of times we'll, we'll be reading the Bible, or we'll hear a message by Ken or someone, and it'll just be like, yeah, that's what I want. That's what I want in my life. I want to be that type of person. It doesn't just happen. There's this progression, this model. Egypt the wilderness, and the promised land. And if we go through that, it's intense. We end up experiencing that abundant life that God talks about in John 10.10. We have life and we have it to the fullest abundantly. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the, uh, just the time we have to study it, to interact. I just thank you for this community and their desire to see you in their life. We just pray that uh, you would speak to us, that you would call us, that you would reveal to us these uh, good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. Um, help us to understand those, creating us a real desire to see those applied in our life. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.